0: The most basic principles that we need for this discussion were discussed last week. So I would suggest, we're not going to bore those who were here, I would suggest that we'll, we won't even attempt to summarize, we'll pick it up from where we left off. Last week we basically tried to look at the spiritual or mystical background of what is a man, what is a woman, basically, and explain how various aspects of male and female personality are manifestations of the mystical picture or reality. Without that you can't really understand the subject. A lot of the way in which a woman has to know how to deal with a husband and how a husband has to know how to relate to his wife are based on those principles. <clears throat> Secondly, we said that we would try and look at the more practical aspects this week. So what I suggest, with your permission, is that I will paint a picture of some of the elements that we didn't cover last week. From a deeper point of view and also more practical, you are invited to note questions on a piece of paper and pass them up. If you're not shy, if you're to ask the question openly, then wait till we get through the introduction, and then you're welcome to ask a question. If you don't want your husband to recognize your voice, then write the question on a piece of paper in two or three lines. I won't be able to read the whole and send it up we can't deal here with specific nuances of personal situations just not possible to go into often takes hours of discussion so if you have a general question or one that you know that's clear cut and concise you know how do you handle an aggressive husband or what happens when one of the couple is advancing in Yiddishkeit and the other one's not interested you know something that's you know that I can (coughs) that my limited mind can (laughs) (coughs) didn't get humorous yet. (laughs) Something that my limited mind can grasp at the (coughs) glance of a few lines. Thirdly, the third part of this series, we didn't say it was a three-part series, we said it was a two-part series, but there's a secret third part which deals with the more intimate aspects of marriage which cannot be discussed in this kind of a forum. will take place, Mr. Shemin Santon, on a date that Al Moffsen perhaps he announced or is available to give that date. That will be for married... For men and women separately, the, ma- the men are only welcome if they're married. Married men only. The women, it's not so important that a woman be married to come to that session. She's quite welcome if she's not. But men, only married men are invited to that session. So you either have to be married or you have to get married between now and... <laughs> But it's essential to understand that subject because you cannot really understand the subject. That's probably the most important single element in marriage, probably, possibly. And therefore, you can't understand the subject without a detailed discussion of that area, and especially because it's so badly misunderstood. What's written about it is uh, presented in such a way that it's usual to understand it incorrectly, and there are terrible, terrible misunderstandings about that area. So that has to be discussed separately. (coughs) Now, um, thirdly, let's try to deal with some issues that were raised after last week's discussion, and again, we'll try and deal with those that are raised this evening. The one thing that was raised after last week's discussion was that it's just too idealistic. What we said last week is that this thing about treating each other in the amazing way which we described, some people felt, I hope some people felt exhilarated, but I know a lot of people felt despair, because it seems a very idealistic way to handle things. The simple thing to understand here is that there is nothing more idealistic. If there's anything worth putting idealism into it's this area. If you're not sure about the spiritual world, let's say, and a person finds it hard to commit himself to a religious way of life, that's understandable. The person has to work towards it, and it's hard to get inspired. It takes a lifetime to find out depth about the spiritual world. But if a person can see clearly if there's one thing it's worth getting inspired about right now, that's certainly marriage. Because even if you're not committed to the spiritual world, if if you're at least married, so you at least should be committed to at least a peaceful coexistence, if not an inspiring, scintillating one, And the only way to get there in marriage is by constant dedication to the idealism of it. There just is no other way. And therefore, it's quite correct that that was a very idealistic, very idealistic picture. But that's the minimum that's required in marriage. As we said, marriage gets taken for granted, certainly by the husband, from the first or second day, if you're lucky, of marriage. And therefore, as we tried to explain that last week, why that is from a spiritual, spiritual, mystical point of view, and therefore, certainly for a husband... It takes constant dedication and devotion. For a woman, it takes constant attention to certain details, as we try to explain, but it has to be at the forefront of your idealism. It has to be ahead of all other idealisms, so that when it comes into competition with every other motivation or idealism in life, that it will win out, because if it doesn't win out, that's when the marriage crashes. We'll try and explain this in detail. Let's start with an idea from the mystical world that's made most explicit by Rabbi Desla. as a way of introduction while you're thinking up the things that bother you. We don't usually have questions on a Monday night, but here we said we would dedicate this to specific practical issues. Let's understand the following issue, which is built on last week's concept of the mystical dimension. This is midway between the mystical Kabbalistic world and the practical emotional Musa world. A wonderful idea to understand. Ideas like this. Marriage is just the most incredible area in which this idea applies itself. But the general idea, which applies to all of life, all of spiritual development, is as follows. Radesla takes from the mystical sources and he explains something like this. There are two poles of human existence. But last week we spoke about the male and female pole. If you refer back to that discussion, if you listen to it, if you haven't heard it yet, you'll understand the mystical depth behind what we're going to say now. But let's just state it now in the practical revealed world. The two poles of human existence are called giving and taking. Let's try and understand this idea. It can be little that's more important than this, before we bring it down to the actual literal, literal practical. A person is either a giver or a taker. The spiritual pathway is to be a giver and not a taker. And that's the hardest thing to learn. The natural instinct of a child, and most people who remain at that level, most of us find it hard to mature into the level that takes work, A child is a taker, not a giver, once for himself. Maturity means learning the ability to control what you want and to be able to give instead. Let's try and understand this idea. You'll see it's a fantastic idea that marriage is just the most acute area of application of this idea, but it actually applies to all of life. Let's look at the more mystical background first, briefly. The background is this. The mystics say that if you look at the world in a, in, an, in a vertical axis, what they call a vertical axis, in other words, if you look at Hashem as being the source of reality, and on a vertical, imaginary vertical axis, you look at the world as being on the bottom, then you see that the direction of giving is from top down. What the mystics call from male to female, the seed is given from the male to the female, and then it's she makes it real, she makes it happen. But giving goes in that direction. The unique thing about it in its absolute sense, is that if you trace the root of giving to its source, which is Hashem, He can only give. There is no taking. Hashem, being perfect, being perfect is nothing that He lacks, which means nothing you can give Him. So what we understand, what He teaches in the world, is that He is a giver. He's not a taker. Everything that He does is an outpouring of goodness and giving. He didn't need you. He doesn't need you to do anything for Him. He has it all already. The only reason that He does anything in the world, like build a complicated world such as this, is in order to be able to give. Hmm? Now we know that the application of the spiritual pathway in the world is that we have to be like Him. Just as He's kindly, you have to be kindly. Just as He's patient, you have to be patient. That's the basis of the spiritual pathway. Which means that just as the source of spirituality is only giving and not taking, so you have to be a giver and not a taker. This wonderful idea, i will try and explore it, this fantastic idea explains many things that are mysterious otherwise. For example, it says, there's a statement in Chazal that says, A person who hates gifts will live. That means if you like to take gifts, you die. If you, if you hate taking gifts, you're alive. That's a very strong statement. What does it mean? Why is a person who likes getting gifts is not considered alive spiritually? But the concept's obvious. If you like to get gifts, it means you want to be given something for nothing. That means you want to be a taker. But you're not re- representing, you're not resembling Hashem at all. The one who likes to give gifts and, not to, and to refuse taking gifts, but only to give gifts, is a person who's trying to model himself into what Hashem is, which is only giving. So you begin to approximate the spiritual image. Whereas if you're a taker, you are just the gaping hole into which all existence falls. Therefore, to resemble Hashem, you have to become a giver, not a taker. Of course, you have to be careful in its application. We're just dealing with a theory. Its application is not always so simple. In its application, often you have to receive a gift, because that, in fact, is giving. If someone wants to give you a gift as an expression of closeness to you, and you would reject the gift, you might hurt them. In other words, it could be many situations that to accept the gift, actually you are giving. You follow? You don't need this gift at all, and you don't want it. But you're accepting the gift as a kindness to the person who has the need to give it. You have to understand the situation in depth. It's not so simple as which way the hands are moving. You have to understand the spiritual depth in it. But that's the concept. That means this, that if a person wants to live, and in marriage, of course, that's the only way to do it. They have to focus on the marriage, not as what I give and get, but only what I give. Last week we explained this by saying that a person, especially a man, is not allowed to look at marriage as a partnership. Because a partnership means I've got my obligations, I give this and this and this, and you owe me these and these things. You have to give that. So already I'm a taker. In half the relationship, I'm demanding I'm a taker. And the marriage is finished if that's, the, if that's the posture. As we explained last week, a man has to compare his wife to what he would have had without her, which is nothing. A can of cold peas, if he's lucky. He wouldn't have had whatever it is that she makes. It might not be... Sometimes it isn't always perfect, but at least it's hot, usually, or at least. Sometimes, huh? Right? He has to compare, again, the idea is to compare himself, which means that anything that he's given is abundance. That's what he has to see. But his emphasis, effort in life, is to become a giver. Now, let's try just to explore briefly one or two aspects of this idea, and we'll try and apply it to marriage. The way, the, the, the most amazing expression of this I've ever heard, from the great Rosh Hashim in Jerusalem, is like this. Let's bring it down to tachlis, to practicality. What does it mean to be a giver and to be a taker? How do you do that? What do you focus on? So I explain the following idea. When you're a giver, it means you're a person who focuses on your obligations. You see, all human relationship is, can be expressed in terms of giving and taking. Right? When I give, I'm the giver, you the taker. That's how we relate. Then there's something. You give me, I become the taker. Really what it boils down to is my obligations and duties are what I have to give. It's what I owe you. My right are what are due to me. That's your obligation. My rights are your obligations and vice versa. Are you with me? That's the way it is. You can call this spectrum giving and taking or you can call it rights and obligations. Now, listen to this. You know, we have an axiom that the Torah way of looking at things is the opposite of the secular way of looking at things. We have an axiom in Torah that the mystical spiritual pathway sees things not just differently but opposite to the secular world. That's a reliable pathway. And it's because our marriages are modeled on the secular world that they're in such trouble. Try and to understand this. Now, if you look at the secular world, you'll see that they also understand that the human world is made up of rights and obligations. But the secular world focuses only on rights. Isn't that amazing? How does the secular world set itself up? If you look at any system of values in the secular world, you'll see it's composed of rights. The Bill of Rights, the rights of a person, the rights of man. You'll see it in the highest of societies, the most democratic and and liberal, whatever you want to call it, of societies are based on rights. Which, of course, is the root of all problems. Because rights mean what is due to me. Which means that you develop in a man or a woman the sense of being somebody who needs and deserves and you owe it to me. Society will never succeed as long as people base themselves on their rights. What happens when you have a world based on rights? You have the rights of the worker. right? The worker is too weak to get his own rights, so he bands together with other workers and he's a force. So what happens? Then you have a National Association of Employers and you have a class war, you have a struggle, you have war. When people focus on rights, what you have is war, battle. Because each one wants to take away his rights, rest his rights, you. And that's how people, if you think about it, it's, it's embarrassing. Even Jewish people bring up their children in the following way. They teach a child to be able to stand up for himself, to demand his rights, and to wrest his rights away from someone else. Now, this has an application. But at the core of the human being, you don't want to be a person who feels that I deserve and you owe me. Such a person bases himself on focusing on his rights, he gets into marriage, definitely is going to fail, because he's going to be demanding what the person owes him all the time. You know what's amazing is that secular society bases itself on rights only. If you look in the Torah, you will never find mention of rights. Isn't that amazing? The Torah only mentions your obligations. Isn't that incredible? Exactly the opposite. The Torah never talks about your rights to your property. It talks about your obligation, not to steal. It talks about your obligation to worry about his rights. Doesn't tell you to worry about your rights. If you want to become a spiritual person, you don't worry about what my rights are and your obligations. You worry about my obligations, what I owe you. Imagine if everybody in society focused only on the obligations, what I have to do for you. And he's worried about what he has to do for me. That's bliss. Imagine in a marriage, if each person's worried only about giving. Don't give me anything in return. I just want the opportunity to give to you. Just give me the opportunity to give. And the other person wants only to give to me. That's bliss. But if you go into a marriage having been trained that I've got rights, that I deserve certain things, you owe me certain things in life, they'll never succeed. There's an incredible medrash that sums it up. The medrash says that when people get into a relationship where there's giving and taking or rights and obligations, the tendency is to be aware of the rights and obligations but to focus on the wrong end of the scale. The medrash puts it like this. It says that in Torah, a man's allowed to own a slave. Now, first of all, it's not not advised because the aloha is that if the slave gets all the privileges. It's not so simple. If there's only one bed, the slave sleeps in it. If there's food for only one, the slave gets it. The government says who acquires a slave acquires a master. It's not so simple. But anyway, the, the fact is a person's allowed to own a slave. So now the, the aloka is like this A man has to treat his slave like his brother. But a slave has to work for his master like a slave. That's what it says. Each one has his obligation. The man is obliged to treat the slave like his brother. And the slave has an obligation to work for the master like a slave. So what happens? After a while, the man says to the slave, you're supposed to be working like a slave. Why aren't you working like a slave? And the slave says to the master, what are you talking about? You're supposed to treat me like your brother. And what do you have? You have misunderstanding and war, and each one's saying true. Each one's quoting the Torah. Each one's saying the truth. The problem is, he's saying the truth, but he's he's saying what the other person should be thinking. In other words, it's a true spectrum, but what makes you a human, what makes you Jewish, what makes you elevated spiritually, is which end of the spectrum you focus on, obviously and therefore what you're supposed to do is sally out into life trying to be only a giver of course you have to bring up children with practical common sense if they go out into life trying to be a giver these days they'll get trump- trampled on and used obviously a child has to be able to tell where it's appropriate where it's, but the core of the personality in the sanctity of the home and in the sanctity of marriage a person must only be a giver then he has to have the wisdom to deal crookedly with the crooked as it says in Torah definitely he has to have the practical common sense for that obviously but the core of the personality where he expresses who he is must be only a giver not a taker Fantastic idea. Now this is a lifetime training. It's not just something you try and do occasionally in marriage. It's easy to talk about this, but it's a lifetime to achieve any of it. That's the first basis a person has to know in marriage. That you have to go home after this talk. Like we said last week, you have to revise these tapes at least once a week. And you have to work on yourself at all times that my obligation, what I'm trying to do here, is become a giver. As soon as you focus on that way, it becomes easy. If a man comes home after a hard day at work, And he's thinking about what his wife owes him. What he deserves now after working so hard all day to support her. But she'll never be able to live up to it. No matter what he finds at home, it'll never be good enough. But if he comes home saying to himself, I've had a hard day at work. How can I now control myself and give my wife what she needs? So then what will happen is he'll walk in and be amazed at what she's done for him. And expect that. He expected her to be a person with needs that he's going to fulfill. And he finds... A bonus that he's given something in return. That's a very, very deep secret that Robert and the mystics, the Bale Musa explain is the secret of successful living. That is how not to focus on what's due to me at all, but only what am I obliged to do. Now, with that in mind, let's look at some practical issues that were raised. Matter note to some of the things. Some of the questions that were asked. And some of the basic principles that they raised. Let's try and go through them one by one. See, I haven't sent up too many questions. I'm going to keep talking. The first issue is that in terms of this attitude of making oneself into a giver, the first thing that one has to apply to marriage on this continuum or spectrum is the concept that marriage is the primary issue. That's what it has to be. If a person thinks that marriage, most men, unfortunately, we tried to explain it from a different perspective last week, most men think that once they've got marriage under their belt, you know, it's done already. So don't take it for granted and that's put into put onto what's called a hold or neutral. That's like the norm now. Being married is the norm. Now he's out in life doing what he has to do. But that's not the Jewish attitude to marriage. The Jewish attitude to marriage is what you're out in life doing is marriage. It's never on neutral or on hold. That is what you're doing. It's much easier for a woman. Women much more often are oriented correctly in this matter. And also women who don't have as a defined primary issue in life. Women who don't. Some women do. But women who don't have as a defined primary object in life some career or something outside of the marriage more naturally tend to define the marriage as the primary issue. And therefore it's much easier taken together with what we said last week about most women's personalities. But a man usually doesn't do that. A man usually defines what he's doing tomorrow, the next project, even if it's a sport or a hobby or his next business enterprise, whatever it is. That's usually defined as achievement, as the primary thing that he's doing. The marriage and the home is what's in his mind defined, even if he doesn't admit it, it's defined as the normal sort of holding norm. Well, never make an inspiration out of marriage if your wife, in your eyes, is the norm. She has to be the primary issue. Try and explain it last week with examples. So that means a man, if he gets married, has to know that he's taking on the responsibility of being able to feed this woman's emotional needs by making her feel that she's the primary issue each and every second of his life. And he has to do that explicitly all the time. And we gave examples last week. should should go over those. Men do that terribly. Men are very, very bad at doing that. Almost no man succeeds in managing to remind himself at least once a day that his wife's the primary issue never mind making her feel aware of it all the time but that's what's required, that's the minimum that's the minimum when he stands under the chuppah he declares to her that she's going to be the primary issue that she takes precedence of all else very hard to do but a man has to train his personality he's responsible for her before he's responsible for, him, for himself and therefore that has to be defined as the primary issue if a person walks around with that defined as the primary issue then things become much easier there's a wonderful way to understand this in terms of practical Musa. Practical Musa means the way a person can put his self-development programs into practical terms. And I once heard it put in the following way. You see, the problem is this, that it's when you don't define the thing as what you're doing, that when it crosses your path and you stumble over it, that you fall. But when you define the thing as being the primary issue, then you won't stumble on it because that's what you're looking forward to. Try to so understand this. Havadis, a great Rosh Hashiv in Jerusalem, he puts it this way. Take an example outside of marriage. Take an example in personal development. Now, it's easy to apply to marriage. Let's assume... Let's take a typical situation. Let's assume a person is put into a situation of stress emotionally. Let's say that they have to get to a certain appointment at a certain time, early in the morning, and they're late. They're late. And what happens is, everything goes wrong. So what happens is, let's say, as they rush out the door, they trip over the dog, and he bashes his head on the doorpost, and while he's seeing stars, he closes the door on his hand... And then he starts screaming at everybody in the family because they're to blame. And by the time he gets to his appointment, if he does, emotionally and spiritually, he's a wreck. The Bible says the following thing Imagine, imagine this is, imagine the scene as follows. That's what happens on Monday morning. Imagine late Sunday night, just before you go to sleep, you get a letter. <coughs> There's a letter from Shemaim, from heaven. Spiritual document. And in that letter, it says, We're just writing to inform you. That tomorrow morning you're going to have an ordeal. At 8 o'clock in the morning you're going to be late. As you're going to rush out the door, you're going to trip and you're going to (coughs) half get concussed. And then you're going to break three fingers in the door. And that's what's happening. And we're watching you. We're watching you. That's being given to you as an ordeal. Don't think for a moment that the point of the object of the day is to get to that meeting. That's not the point. The point is to see how you respond. That's what we're watching. We don't care if you get to that meeting or not. What we care about is how you're going to handle that situation. The person has that letter. What happens? What happens the next morning? He's late. And he rushes out the door, right? And he trips over the dog and hits his head and he's singing, right, with joy. Because, and as he has his fingers crunch in the door, he smiles, right? Because the point is that you can take the pain. The problem is just what you define as primary. If you define as primary getting through this experience, then anything that stands in your way needs to be wiped out. But if you define as primary the experience, and that's what you're in the world for, you'll go through the flying colors, definitely. It's a question of defining what it is you... Ravadis goes on to say that you have a letter like that. What's the excuse to have a letter? You have a letter, you've been told. What do you mean you're surprised at eight in the morning when this happens? Don't you know? You've been told already. You've been given a letter at the beginning of your life. That's a Jew's obligation. That's what Torah means. It's a letter from the higher dimension personally informing you that you're being watched. And what we want to see here is how you handle ordeals and how you cope with difficulty and whether you get angry or not. And you've been informed about that. Of course, it's hard to remember that you've been given that letter. You have to remind yourself every day, but if you remind yourself that the primary object of this experience is how you handle the next five minutes, then it's much easier. It's much easier. Let's study the next area. Next application. The West teaches us We'll make this the last theoretical background issue. The Western culture teaches us about love. Marriage is love. That's what it is. That's what it should be. But the West teaches us what love is and what love should be. The problem is that Western culture gives us a false version of what love is. They take something else and they teach you that that's love. And actually, that's not love. And therefore, when you try and focus on that and make that into what you think is love, definitely it fails. That thing is what's called Romance. Try to understand this. The West sets up a model that they call romance, but they tell you that that's love. The truth is, so try to understand. The truth is this: romance is absolutely non-existent. You know that in Hebrew there's no word for it. The concept called romance. In Hebrew, in Torah, there is no word for that. There is no Hebrew word for it. Which the mystics always say means that the thing is artificial. If the thing had reality, it would have a word. Because all things in the world that Hashem created, He created with a word. The word came before the thing. If there's a concept in the world that's real, there must be a Torah word for it. If you can't find a Torah word for the thing, we've discussed this in other contexts before, then the thing doesn't exist. In Hebrew, there's no word for romance. What is it? Try and understand. Love, let's start that way. Love is defined as giving. What we started with. Love is defined as giving. The Hebrew word Ahava, the root of it is have, which means to give. The root of the word love means to give. One of the deepest principles in the mystical world is that you love where you give, not where you take. Where you take is where you love yourself. When a person says, I love fish. You don't love fish. If you love fish, you'd see to it that it was swimming around happily where it was. (laughs) You don't love fish. You love you. You love you. But you say you love, you follow. Obviously, no. So when, the, the concept, we think that love is where you get fed, where you have a need and it's fulfilled. That's, it doesn't make you love, it makes you appreciate. And it can fill into the love experience. It certainly does that. Especially where pleasure is involved, as the mystics explain. am not going to go into it now. But the essence of, of love is where you give. There are many, many proofs, wonderful proofs and... Mystical applications of it. One, simply just choose one example. It's the reason why parents always love children more than children love their parents. The reason that parents love their children more than children love parents is because the giving's in that direction. Where you give is where you love. Where you take, doesn't generate love. Rabbi Dester tells a fantastic story about a family that was separated when the Russians and the Germans invaded during the Second World War, a certain town where the Russians and Germans invaded at once. The family was um, evacuated to two different sides. The mother with children and the father with a little child. The father with a child who was two years old was evacuated to one side and the mother with the rest of the family to another. They didn't see each other for the next four and a half or five years. The mother said many years later that she was never able to love that child as much as the others, because she'd been deprived of the years, the, the intense years of a mother's giving to the child. Isn't amazing? She never could feel the same for the child. It's also why mothers love their children more than their fathers in a certain way, because they give more in terms of pain, in terms of their own being. But where you love is weak. the mystical explanation is because where you give is where you are. That's the mystical explanation. Where you give yourself, where you give yourself, not just give tokenism, that doesn't make you love. But where you give yourself is where you are located. And if you give yourself properly in marriage, which means you give your whole self, so then of course you love, not, never mind love the person, you exist within them. The problem with most of us is that when we enter marriages, we have a need for certain gratification. We find some fulfillment for that gratification. We then feel something emotional which lasts half an hour, a day, a week, whatever it is, and odd occasions thereafter, maybe if you're lucky, in a false way. But then what happens is that a man especially keeps re-examining in his mind if actually a man has a problem working out in his mind whether this woman's actually part of him or not part of him. Sometimes she feels like she is, feels like she is part of him and it feels natural and other times he feels like, Where, how did I get into this? And, you know, who is this person? That's how a man feels. The problem is that men forget to define until it's much too late the fact that they're supposed to be living within the other person. It's hard to go into the details here, also the background. But the idea of marriage is that you should give yourself so intensely that you don't live anywhere else except in that person's personality. So, of course, you love them. You love them as intensely as you do. Your entire existence is within the ambit of that person's neshama. That's what love means. You don't leave any of yourself out. See, men are very afraid... Men especially, to close that circle, to make the final step, to make an irrevocable step. A man doesn't like it, he's give all his options open. That's the male personality. We've discussed this in a discussion called Closing the Circle, you can get that type also, which is also a very important subject. But men don't like to take a step that they can't undo. They like to have all their options open. And a man feels he's losing his personality, he's losing himself, his individuality, when he gives himself to a woman entirely. But that's what marriage is. A man is to define himself as having given himself entirely into where the other person is, and a woman also. And Then of course you love, but it's only as a result of the act of giving. And most people realize this only when it's much too late, much too late. They suddenly realize, when it's almost the end of love that they never actually made that decision, that, to actually give themselves entirely. You see, in some couples that did, especially people from the last generation where it was a much more natural, they were much more normal people, previous generations, and we are much more givers than we are, much more bonded to responsibility than we are. You see that it's a much more natural act to bond into one. My brother-in-law is a doctor in Israel. I remember when I arrived in Israel, he showed me... We met a certain very elderly couple who live in the same little town. They were patients of his. They told me an experience that he had when he arrived. One of the first patients in his rooms was this elderly couple. They walked in. The woman obviously had something wrong with her leg. So the man supported her into the examining room, and he seated her on the chair, and as she exposed the leg to show him the wound she was busy exposing the problem with the leg he leaned across the desk and he said to my brother-in-law we have a sore leg so how many of us think that way now the western concept of love isn't giving the western concept of love is what's called romance now let's understand what is romance, what is it, this non-existent thing, what is it It's the artificial experience, it's a long discussion in its own right, and we don't have time to go through the details, but the essence of the idea is this. The mystics say, again it takes an intimate knowledge of the intimate area, we can't go into that now, but essentially the essence is like this. (laughs) That the mystical sources say that every experience has a flash of unreal inspiration in the beginning, and then just as you get in touch with the unreal experience, then it disappears. Many, many examples. There are many examples. we discussed it on other occasions. You can also listen to that discussion in detail. The source of it is you'll see that the whole physical world is built that way. The human being relates only in that way. When you smell a smell, for example, you notice it only while it's new. After you become accustomed, to you can't smell it anymore. That means it only impinges when you hear a sound. After a while, hearing a sound, you don't only notice a change. When you feel something, you, you make your sensation register as you feel it, and then you can't feel it anymore. You have to change, move. Right? Again, there's a whole intimate side to this which I can't go into. It's called touching and not touching, but a mystical idea. But the point is that you can only sense a thing at the explosion of its inception, beginning. As soon as you've become adjusted to it, you can't sense it anymore. Why is that? Why is that? Many examples it says that a child in the womb is taught the whole Torah. child is taught the whole Torah and then he forgets it. Why teach him the whole Torah mystically if he's going to forget it? The point is that there's a flash of inspiration where it's lifted to a tremendous dimension and then it's taken away, driven into the subconscious. Many, many experiences, like a new friendship, when a person makes a new friendship. There's an acceleration at the beginning of discovering a new personality. But as soon as you become accustomed to the person, they don't feel them anymore. Until something happens where they do something, um, a sacrifice for you, or they give of themselves, but in the norm of it, you don't feel it anymore. The mystical idea is that in the spiritual dimension, they, they hype you up they get you to a level that you need to be gotten to artificially because you wouldn't get there yourself in order to taste the exhilaration of this experience. Many sources in Torah for it. But then as soon as you've got the feeling of it, they take it away. Why? Because now you have to get back there through your own effort. Having been given it artificially is a meaningless experience. We need to do it to you so you can experience what the thing is. But that isn't called achievement. You didn't work on that. You didn't work on yourself to get there. So as soon as you've experienced it, they take it away, and now you have to work back to that point through your own effort. Then it's called an acquisition. Romance is the unreal swirl of emotions that happen between a man and a woman with no reason at all. You don't even know this person. You don't even know this person. You haven't given anything yet. What have you given to each other? But there's an amazing mystical force that happens, electricity that happens between a man and a woman, that's an unreal exhilaration, but just as soon as you latch onto it, it's taken away. That's the norm. That's the way the world's built. Why is it taken away? So you can work for the next 55, 120 years, on getting back to that level through the effort of having given yourself to that person so it becomes a real acquisition that that becomes you. Marriage is the learning ground for all spiritual development. But people in the West think that romance is love. So what happens is as soon as the romance goes, they think that this isn't love anymore. They don't realize, because they've had no Jewish education, that that's where you get your teeth stuck into it and that's where you start building the love. How many times hasn't it happened to a young man who wants to speak to me? He comes in, closes the door, sweating and shaking, white knuckles on the table. Says to me, listen, I married the wrong woman. I say, how long have you been married? Three and a half months. I say, w- 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 why do you say that? He says, when I was with this woman in the beginning, when I saw her, bells rang, the music played. It was an unreal experience. I was floating in the clouds. I think. Now, I don't feel anything. What do I do? No, I, I can't break it to her, the divorce news. You know. So explained to him, that's the norm. That's the way the relationship is designed to be. Hashem puts into the world an unreal fleeting emotion called romance. It doesn't have a name even. Just to get you hooked on the experience. To show you what could be if you work on it between the two of you. But then, just as soon as you've got bitten, hooked, then it gets taken away so that you can now work on giving yourself to the other person, which takes a lifetime to do, to reach the same level. But we're not taught that. The Western world tells you, you must take... What do you give it? In other words, you must be a taker. Where you get exhilaration, where you get gratification, that's what's love. That's you, that's living. As soon as that disappears and you have to put work into it, they're not interested. Obvious. I mean, what's the epitome, what's the crux, what's the, the height of romance in the West? You know, they study this disgusting subject. What's the epitome of romance? What do they call it? Love at first sight. That's what they call it. They call it love at first sight. It's pathetic the way they put the words in to have you thinking already. What is this love at first sight? What is it exactly? Let's understand the depth of this beautiful thing. Here's a young woman, right? She's taking a Caribbean cruise. She comes up on deck, and there she sees him. Now, she's looking out over the sea, (laughs) starched white uniforms, got a little cleft in his chin, there's a few blonde curls. As she lays eyes on him, the music plays, the bells ring, you know. That's it. That's that's love at first sight. If you read those novels or those movies or whatever it is about three and a half pages later comes the end of the thing because I promise you 35 years later when she climbs up on deck and he's leaning over the rail (laughs) there's no music playing and bells ringing that just doesn't happen. In fact a a week after the it doesn't happen. So our attitude to romance is that it's an unreal experience to be enjoyed only to show you what could happen and there must be a gut feeling, a gut reaction there must be chemistry it's perhaps one of the most important things in choosing a spouse But after that happens, a person should use that high to get exhilarated and inspired enough to work on giving so that it doesn't disappear, so that it translates itself from the automatic dimension into the manual dimension where you're actually doing it and working on it. But that's the norm. That's what marriage is. But our marriages are collapsing at the rate of more than one in two now, within the first months of marriage, because people think that sometimes you see that people learn the hard way. Second marriages, for example. Second marriages are often much more successful in this, unfortunately, this modern day and age. Second marriages after divorce are often much more successful because people are much more mature. They understand what they want out of it in a mature, a mature fashion. Learn how to give a little bit. Often that happens. It's another subject. Now, that's the idea. That's the idea. So we don't look for romance. We look at the Jewish way of defining things. We're not interested in the romantic experience. We're interested only just getting us going. It's just a push-off. To get pushed off into love. But then as soon as our natural feelings start to fade, then a the person has to build the natural feelings. Has to make it exciting. It's to put work into it to get it back to what it was. That's the norm. All right. Let's go through a few practical issues that were raised. Practical points, okay? That's by way of background. If I've forgotten anything important, you're welcome to draw my attention to it. If I can, I'll tell you about it. But let's look at some practical issues, okay? Let's tick off some points in the practical world, try and examine them. These are questions that have been asked, and I'll try and deal with them. First of all, how to choose a husband or wife, okay, briefly. If you if it's too late <laughs> if it's too late, then you should have two aims in mind. One is not, not for the second time. One is how to use this in terms of being an educator as a parent or grandparent, right? You don't even have to be married any longer, you might not no longer be married. How you use this information in order to shape people who come under your influence And also, if you made the wrong, if you didn't apply these criteria, then you just have a wonderful opportunity to give even more than you would have otherwise. Let's try and understand. What are the principles in choosing a spouse? This is what a Jewish parent should educate their children. Again, the pain and agony of the situation is that because we've been brought up in the secular world, we do it exactly wrong. Exactly. The way we choose, the way the secular world chooses husband or wife, is completely by accident. Completely by accident. The first time, you know, the first time they laid eyes on each other, was in the most unreal of circumstances, those circumstances geared most specifically to cause a marriage to fail. Let's try try and understand. I think the best way to do it is to compare it to the Torah system. In the Torah system, you don't get married by accident. You make a cool, calculated decision. You choose somebody. That's not being mercenary. You are choosing the most important thing in your life. In the secular world, you happen to what they call fall in love with somebody because you happen to cross paths by some accident someplace. And now you're emotionally entangled and eventually it leads to marriage sometimes. But you didn't make a decision. People who live in that mode, they put a lot more agonizing into choosing uh, uh, something that costs almost nothing, can agonize for days about spending a few hundred friends on something, but marriage absolutely by accident. But it's an incredible idea. Judaism doesn't approach it that way. You make a cool, calculated decision about whom you're going to marry. You take it on as a logical issue. But you're giving your life to this person, the generation that will come out of you, your emotional well-being, who you are as a personality for the next 120 years. And the, the future generations that will come from the TV? They're not going to go into that by accident. We need to check it out very carefully. A man asked him, a used motor car salesman, a lot more questions, detailed questions, <laughs> than he asked any Shatkan about who the future wife is. Not interested. <laughs> he would look with scorn on anyone who judged a second hand motor vehicle by the, you know, skin, by the shape of the, fuse, you know, body. But that's what he does, essentially. do understand. The Jewish approach is like this. Incredible, way-off, radical approach to marriage. But you'll see it makes much more sense, even if you're not religious. I would strongly suggest you that if you've got no interest in religion, you steer your children in this direction. Because the only possibility of making a success virtually, what is that? Boy meets girl in the following way. This is how it works in the Torah system. Boy meets girl like this. Somebody, you go to somebody knowledgeable that you can rely on to ask you, and you ask to be introduced to somebody suitable. And before you even meet the person, you already have a vague idea that some of the important issues are solved already. Then what happens is when you meet the person, sounds all very artificial, shidduch, shidduch system, sounds very artificial. You see how wonderful it is. When you meet the person, what happens is, first of all, there's no deception. Because both of you know that you're meeting with a view to something serious. There's no artificial emotions that men usually let women think that they're involved in for certain vested interests, like a secular world. That's usually the way it goes. You just can't have that. There is no physical relationship. So there are no vested interests. So the thing is on an even keel from the beginning. And you discuss the important issues and you get to look at each other in a balanced way. A man cannot bring himself to look at a woman as only a physical object. It's a very feminist idea. This it's it's ironic because the feminists think that religion is anti-feminist, but actually it's the most feminist way of living, because he's forced to look at a woman as a total creature. He's not allowed to look at her first of all. She's not allowed to be immodestly dressed. You know how boy meets girl, the guard on the shidduch. The halacha is that a woman must be modestly dressed. So first of all, he cannot be attracted only by the body. It's hard enough even then. It's hard enough even then for an old man, but at least it's not emphasized. But she has to be dressed in an attractive and feminine way. Because it's forbidden in Anoka for a woman to wear man's clothing. So you see what he's presented with? A feminine and attractive, beautiful woman, but cannot overemphasize the physical. And he can't allow himself to engage in the physical side of the issue, because that's not allowed. So he's forced to look at that as an entire human being. It's a fantastic, balanced way to start a relationship. He has to put his money where his mouth is. In other words, he has to commit himself to the relationship before he can expect to get any of the vested interests. Which obviously is the way to make a deal. In the secular world, you have a travesty of that. In the secular world, women have got no rights left, no rights left at all, battered into total insensitivity. woman has to yield all her rights, right? Otherwise, she's just the loneliest of individuals. And then what happens is, after years and years of years of giving away her rights, then she expects someone to marry her. Why should he marry her? That's the norm these days. After years of a relationship, that's the norm now. The norm is that people now get married in the non-religious world after knowing each other for years, living together for years, living together. What happens? After three, four, five years of living together, she starts to talk about marriage, as I mentioned last week, and he disappears usually. Why should he, why should a man want to get married these days? He has all the rights. He has all the rights of marriage now. Marriage only means obligations. What's he got to gain over here? All he takes on is a set of obligations. Women have been thoughtless enough to give away all the rights. Without demanding any of the obligations return. Men have battered them into it and women have allowed it to be done. So women are in a situation where they have nothing left to offer. It's a terrible situation, a terrible situation. It's a thoroughly good reason for in- inspiring your daughters in the most radical way possible. To live in a way that's radically different from secular society. Just so that they have a chance in life. Otherwise they become used, used material. And used again and again and again. And women are the one who suffer, ones who suffer. Men become desensitized, but women suffer. So that doesn't happen. Here you have two people who are inspired about life, unused. They have to offer towards each other a total gift. Do you know what an inspiration that is? You know in a uh, uh, Froome wedding, if you go to your Shiva wedding, you can cut the electricity, with, you can feel it. Here are two people who have saved themselves. That means their entire being. They've made an ideal of it for their lifetime to find a person to whom they're going to give that. And they give their entirety to that person. That means they give themselves past, present, and future. Every fiber of their being is now given to that identity. It's an explosion of of emotion. But in the secular world, what is exactly a chuppah? Where is the electricity of it? There's almost nothing left. We're worn-to, worn-out individuals who've been used over and over again, (laughs) jaded experiences, no spiritual content. It's a terrible, terrible thing. People aren't even informed about the spirituality of a chuppah and what's involved. Not even get inspired about that. So the choice isn't made in an intelligent way. The choice is made with a complete skew. A man is given an opportunity to make a complete skew choice. The way it usually happens in the secular world is that here he's walking across the campus. Lawns. And across his field of vision comes something that looks like it's about to take a bath. <laughs> and th- that's a norm. So what he sees... (laughs) So what he sees first is the physical. Now, what should a person look for? First of all, a person should know... A person should know that... If you make a right effort for a person, that you'll be given the person who's destined for you from the spiritual world. We have a deep belief that at a person's conception, very close to the time a person's conceived, a voice goes out in the spiritual world and declares that such and such a person is destined for this person to marry. And it's an absolute watertight guarantee that if you make a genuine effort to find that person, you will find them. You can miss them. You can miss them if you don't make the right effort. But if you make the right effort, you are guaranteed you'll find the person who's been destined for you. That applies to first marriage. The second marriage is have a different spiritual basis. I'm not going to go into it now. But that applies to the first marriage. Now, that means you're finding someone predestined for you. How do you do that? You have to know how to make... It, it happened once, Rebchaim of Tzant, a very great tzaddik in the 1800s, one of the greatest sages of his time, a great Hasidic leader, prime of Tzans, Very a great genius of a man. He got married. The way he got married was as follows. Very interesting. When his wife was presented to him, she noted that he limped. He, had a lame, he was lame in one leg. And the girl said, when the, the shidduch was suggested, although he was a very great man, promised to be one of the world's great Torah leaders of the generation, the girl said she was unhappy about marrying a man who had a defect like that. So Reb Chaim said, let me just speak to her in private for a few minutes. So they were in private for a few minutes and Reb Chaim said to her the following thing. I just want you to know, I'm not saying you should marry me, I just want you to know the following thing. That before, I was, before we were born, in Shamaim, They showed me you. Before we were born, in the spiritual world, I remember that they showed me you. And I was struck by you. They showed me the woman, when that voice went out, they showed me spiritually the woman I was destined to marry. And I saw you had a lame leg. So I said to them, let me take that on. What do you look for exactly? What is it that you look for? And this is what a person, again, you have to teach children to look for this, definitely. You have to educate children. A little girl, when a little girl being brought up, the mother must point out to her good qualities in a man. If they go to a place where she sees that the man helps, for example, the mother should point out to her little girl what a wonderful quality that is in a husband who helps his wife, so that the child will grow up with an appreciation of those things. So she learns what to appreciate in a man. But this is such basic education, it's a great shame and embarrassment that we, d- we don't do this and we aren't taught these things. What should a young couple look for in each other? What should a young person look for? So very, very briefly, the Jewish approach to it is as follows. More or less in order of priority. Not necessarily exactly, but more or less in order of priority. More or less. First of all, these first three or four are actually... Um, <coughs> contemporaneous they have to all be looked at they, which is more important one is there must be a natural attraction that's the first thing there must be a natural for all this room talk about about shiduchim and working it all out but there must be a gut feeling and electricity a chemistry it's a halacha it says a man's not allowed to marry a woman without seeing her no matter how wonderful she is uh, on paper as it were he must see her there must be chemistry right between the two that's the first thing. the second thing is the second thing is good medicine, okay Good medis, which means good character traits. There's nothing more important than that. Good basic medis, which means gentle, kindly, generous, giving individual who's not hung up in any way. That's the first thing a person should look for. Is this person gentle, kindly, a giving individual? Not a selfish person, a complicated person, a person who's hung up in any way. Basic goodliness and kindliness and normality. Great intellect is almost irrelevant. Sometimes it's a big disadvantage. Not certain details physically or intellectually are irrelevant gentle kindly a gutter somebody who's got goodness and emanates it. ok let's look at a few specifics that have been raised these questions and I'll read you the first one what is chemistry this question is obviously from a woman woman not just that it's written on pink paper, like.
1: <laughs>
0: From a man? What is chemistry? There's a man who writes a question, what is chemistry? Okay, yeah, that man must speak to me privately.
1: <laughs> okay, let, let's
0: try and uh, briefly look at a few of these points, also, specifically. First of all, Practical techniques. What happens, this was asked also, what happens when there are habits, okay, that the one partner has, again, it's all common sense, this and comes down to the same principles that we spoke about last week and we spoke about in the beginning, but let's try and make it practical. What happens when there are partners, one of the partners has certain habit patterns, behavior patterns, habit patterns, or personality traits that come into conflict with the other. What should be the attitude? The kind of scenario that's usual is, often it happens that it's, and often it goes around vested interests like money, That's how many families are fractured by the fact that the woman forgets to switch off the lights. That's all. She just forgets to switch off the lights. That's all. She's not careful about switching off lights. And the husband builds it into a major catastrophe. Okay? Or some other aspect of her behavior. She's not neat. Let's say, or the house is a little untidy sometimes, and the husband is a punctilious sort of uh, obsessive character who likes the house. Nick, all the time. The yeah, Torah advice in such a situation, the Torah advice is not to try and modify the other person's behavior. That's not the way to do it. If you do have to, it has to be at a time, as we explained last week, when it's not an issue. Not at the time when it is an issue. At the time when it's not an issue. At the time when it's been done correctly. And not when it's been done incorrectly. But, the right way to do it is if it's, if, if in objective reality you can put up with that problem, then you should put up with it. For example, if it's a financial issue, that the woman does something that costs money, let's say. She leaves the lights on or she forgets to switch off the stove or burns out kettles one after the other because it leaves them, whatever it is. Then a husband, a Jewish husband, should say to himself, sit down one day when she's not around and say to himself, let's make a calculation how much this costs me. What does this cost me? What is the cost of all the lights that she leaves on that all month? And it will come to such a small amount. And even if it's a marriage, let's say, you follow, let's say it will come to work out that because of these habits that she has, that he thinks are impractical and are irresponsible and are, and we start to put hyped up words to these things, then he should say to himself, it so costs me extra 25 rands a month, right? The extra lights that burn because she doesn't switch them off. Isn't 25 rands a month a fantastic investment in your marriage? I mean, a fantastic investment? That will cost you 100. How much are you prepared to? Yeah, ask yourself. What are you prepared to invest? Not a month. In the fact that she... Let's say this is a woman. Let's make it really serious. Let's make it really serious. This is a woman who who dents the car repeatedly. (laughs) Hmm?
1: (laughs) This is a woman who's
0: addicted. Habitually, habitually dents the car. A man should say to himself, how lucky I am. (laughs) to have a wife who does all the fetching and carrying yes, that's what he should say to himself he should say to himself that it does what does it cost what will it cost even if it's very expensive it's nothing compared to what an investment in one's marriage is worth and if a man shows his wife that he doesn't get upset about such things she'll have such intense admiration for his strength of character and his depth of self-control the way to handle it of course is to expect the car to be scratched every day. Not to. That's only anyway. one. Definitely. Definitely. If a man buys, invests unwisely in in a vehicle that is beyond his price range, and he puts everything into it, and then he lets his wife drive it, and then she comes home and tells him that you know the garage wall isn't where it used to be, or <laughs> whatever. it is. <laughs> That's not the way to do it. The way to do it is buy our own car. Prevent the issue. Spend money where necessary, where appropriate, to prevent the issue. Or be prepared for the worst. Now, for worse than what's likely to happen, those are the ways to do it. It's a fantastic advice. It's a chesed. That's how you'd like to be treated. And therefore, a person should build the situation. Also, when it comes to using names and words, often you sit down and you, you apply a title or a name, a description to the, to the fact or the event that's much worse than it need be. If you can train yourself to apply appropriate words, that de-emphasize or put a positive light on the situation. You know, Let's say you've got a wife who is, uh, let's say, violent. Right? Let's say... Let's say she... When she gets upset or when you make her upset, she breaks things in the kitchen. Let's say she throws things out the windows and she breaks... Them. A man should say that his wife is... He's lucky to have a wife who's vivacious.
1: <laughs>
0: that puts a whole different complexion on it and it's much easier... <laughs> you have to work with yourself
1: and
0: know how to that's another message first of all being prepared and tolerating okay, and uh, using artifices that are that are where a person has to be judgmental that they judge favorably and they are ready for it and that they define their wife as primary all those put together for example let's say let's take a scenario here is a man who has invited his boss for Shabbos dinner this boss is very important to him. His future depends on how this boss sees him. He's been nagging his boss for weeks to come over because he hopes to influence his boss in a more religious Jewish direction. He wants him to see the warmth and beauty of a Jewish home. His boss has finally agreed to come over with his wife and they arrive for Shabbos dinner and um, <coughs> his wife has forgotten mm, that they're coming. She's forgotten at Shabbos and she's still resting from her afternoon. <laughs> to think, okay. or, 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 Or let's say... Uh, she baked colours and she, she forgot to put the yeast especially baked chalas he's been lecturing her and taking her to study courses for the the Osama course for the last six weeks how to bake colours so that he can impress his boss with warm, fresh home-baked chalas and that for sure you know his boss is to be got to through his stomach and that's how he's going to do it the woman forgot to put the yeast in the chalice and when he picks them up to make a mozzi he got two very flat pancakes
1: <laughs>
0: that kind of situation especially common in newlywed Newlywed wives do that kind of thing. The husband should say to his boss, Look at this, he should say. We have a wonderful, do you know that we have a wonderful custom in our home? (laughs) 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 When we say Zechelitz Yas Mitzrayim, we like to remind ourselves of the matzahs. In other words, you have to be creative, right? You have to be creative about how you're going to save the situation, but instead of do what a lesser man would do in such circumstances. Dandakastuchus means it's a Jewish obligation to judge. That's a Jewish obligation. It's a mitzvah of the Torah. That where it's possible to ascribe a positive motivation or a positive view of something that happened to somebody else, you're not allowed to ascribe a negative view. You have to say that probably it happened because of something even extreme. You have to do that. And therefore, when a woman does something, or husband does something, that it's very hard to make allowances for, it's a downright Jewish primary obligation to explain it to yourself in such a way that the person wasn't responsible, or that it probably happened for a very good reason. Or how many times have you done such a thing? You have to see it that way. And certainly to one's wife or husband, that's a primary obligation. We should be... We'll try and continue this on a private basis to deal with the other areas and perhaps things that I've omitted or forgotten. But let's just try and leave on the note of a twiller that we should be able to be able to make this issue primary. Not too late. It's never too late. On the contrary, the more you feel it's too late, the more urgent the need is to make this a primary issue. To put aside everything else in life. The children, certainly one's way of earning a living, one's professional career, they all need to be put aside to make extreme efforts... To build oneself into the kind of personality that the other person, your spouse, will not be able to help loving and that you do for them right, more than what you'd want them to do for you. If a person will do that, that will not only make happiness in marriage, that will make a person's character and personality be completed. It will make children inspired about the world. It will make the Jewish people build itself into a perfection and a shlemus. mr shem that should bring the good.